Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is traditionally the day in the church calendar where we celebrate Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It's the Sunday before Easter, and it is the day where Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people were crying out uh, that they wanted him to be their king, and they were taking these palm branches, and they were waving them before him. That event led into what is commonly referred to as Passion Week or the last week of Jesus' life where he taught in Jerusalem. Um, It got really intense in a few um, uh, times with the teaching and the Pharisees to the point where their anger and rage uh, elevated to the point where they felt like the only thing they could do was take him out and so they plotted against him. They arrested him, it culminated with his arrest and him being hung on a cross on Friday, being put in a borrowed tomb, and it finished on Sunday, Easter day, resurrection day, where he rose from the grave and there was nothing but an empty tomb in its place. Now, we're not there in the story just yet in Matthew. That's all the stuff we celebrate today but rather than jumping ahead in the story and then jumping back, we're gonna keep on rolling with what we're doing today, which is interesting because that means next week, I'm not gonna teach on the story of the resurrection of Matthew. Next week, we're gonna go through Matthew 17 and I'm gonna teach an Easter message on the transfiguration. And I'm really excited about it. But that leaves us today in Matthew chapter 16. But what's interesting about Matthew chapter 16 is Matthew chapter 16 is the first time that Matthew records that Jesus teaches his disciples that he will in fact suffer and be killed and rise again. So on the day that we traditionally celebrate him coming into Jerusalem to accomplish what his ultimate task was, we're gonna read today on the first time that he entrusts his disciples with this message. Cool? Good, so let's do this. In Matthew chapter 16, we're going to study today about Jesus teaching his disciples about suffering and about the resurrection, but baked within that is a deeper message that I kind of want to touch on a little bit, and that is essentially a warning, a warning to the disciples, and through Matthew's recording of the story, a warning to us. And it's a somber warning. It's not like, oh, you're doing something bad. It's uh, definitely you need to come back and touch on this regularly and revisit this because this is a thing that we as the people of God will do without even realizing it. And that is a warning against not living or believing or preaching the whole message of the gospel. Especially in our day today, We are guilty of picking the parts of his message that we like best and holding on to them like some kind of security blanket and ignoring the rest of them. But what Matthew 16 is gonna teach us today is that part of the gospel story is not the whole gospel story. The whole gospel story 
is the whole gospel story. Amen? And it's important for us to understand the whole message so we can teach the whole message and so we can live the whole message. Cool? Let's get into it. Matthew chapter 16, we're gonna start in verse one. This chapter starts off verse one. It says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. That's important. We'll come back to that in a second. These religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were two completely different religious groups. They did not typically work together. They didn't typically get along. They all came together and came to Jesus and asked him for a sign from heaven. And he answered, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now what Jesus does here is actually pretty punny. Because when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him and say, we want you to show us a sign from heaven, and he replies, when it's, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. Verse three, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. In Greek, the word for sky and heaven are the same word. So they ask, give us a sign from heaven, and he says, you already read the signs in heaven. The problem isn't reading the signs, and he knew what, he was asked, what they were asking, but he's making a point. The problem isn't you not being able to read the signs of heaven. You do that because you know how to tell the weather. The problem is you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times, meaning, you're asking for proof when I've already given you proof. In fact, you're asking for proof about who I am when I, God, am standing right in front of you. Now think about how ridiculous that is. Jesus himself, God in flesh, standing in front of you, and your desire is, show me a sign. Buddy, the sign is he's breathing in front of you. The sign is he took on human flesh and he was raised as a child and he grew up into a man and he's got these 12. What more of a sign do you want? Not to mention the fact that he's been feeding 5,000 and 4,000 and raising people back from the dead. What more sign do you want? There are signs all around you, but you're not seeing them. And the question today is, why aren't these Pharisees and Sadducees seeing the sign? And he tells us in verse four, it's because they're an evil and adulterous generation. Does this mean that all of the men were committing adultery in marriage and all of the women in this culture were not um, being faithful in their marriage? No, he's using adultery as an illustration of what they were doing with their hearts in relation to being the people of God. They were, as Jewish people, in a covenant with God, much like a marriage. But rather than giving their affections to the one they were devoted to, they were constantly giving their affections to the world. 
They were giving their desire and their affections to wanting to be somebody in this world. They weren't interested in building his kingdom, they were interested in building their kingdom. So their affections had nothing to do with, I love my God. No, their affections were, I love my life. I love my job, I love my car, I like being in charge, I like that people have to answer to me, I like being my own boss, I like that nobody tells me what to do. I like that, that for a people who are in covenant with God is adultery. It is unfaithfulness to the God who gave everything to redeem his people unto himself. And that is why when God is among them, they can't see it because their heart has already been given away to something else, which is important for us because it teaches us that giving our heart to this world blinds us to God working right in our midst. When God is moving, you have a very difficult time identifying that it's actually him because your heart doesn't really get stirred for him. Your affections, your love, your devotion, it's not for his things, the, sting, the, the, the stuff that he loves, it's the stuff that you love. So when you get into his presence, when you read his word, when you show up to church on Sunday and the music starts, the things that stir his affection, how do we know those are the things that stir his affection? Because that's what he told us in this word stirs his affection. He commands us to lift our hands, to sing, to worship, to study the word. These are things that he said, if you're gonna approach me, this is what I like. This is how I like being worshiped. And so we say, well, I don't really like that. Maybe I'll do it this way. How about I love you my way? He's like, no, I don't want you to love me your way. I want you to love me my way. That's why I gave you this book. Read it. Do what's in it. But these Pharisees and these Sadducees had redefined what they felt like approaching God looked like And so what they did was they redefined what obedience looked like. They added to obedience and they started elevating their preferences, like we said last week, above what God said. And it reminds us that if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can allow the world to stir our affections to the point where the things of God have no appeal. And when they're in our midst, we miss them. Now, He leaves them from this section with a final word where he says the only sign you're going to get is the resurrection, the sign of Jonah, the sign that a prophet was put into the belly of the whale and three days later was spit up and the the message to the city was repent. That's the message of Jonah. But a better Jonah was coming, Jesus, he would be put down into the belly of the earth for three days, he would rise again, and the message to anyone who wants to follow him would also be repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message is the same, and this is what he's saying. There is no shortage of proof, there is only a heart in you that doesn't want God, and so you're going to miss the proof. So at the end of the day, the only thing you'll ever really get is an empty tomb, and you'll have to decide what you think about that. So Matthew 16, five, we'll pick up the story here. So don't forget this conversation because this conversation is gonna build, this is important for the whole rest of the chapter. 
When the disciples reached the other side, so they had crossed over Galilee, they had gotten, they had, excuse me, when they crossed over the other side uh, of, the, of the lake, they realized that they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now classic Jesus mode, right? The disciples are just talking, man, we forgot bread. We're gonna be hungry. And Jesus is like, um, hey guys, you should be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, um, maybe he didn't hear us. <laughs> we forgot bread. I want you to picture this. They're getting out of the boat. Probably John, Peter, they were like, God, Peter, did you bring the bread? No. John, did you bring it? No, I thought you had it. No, we don't have any bread. Now, is that ultimately a problem after you've just watched the master of the universe feed 5,000 people uh, and then 4,000 people by pulling bread? Is that really an issue? No, but apparently it was because they're pointing fingers, we forgot to bring bread. That's a small thing, but it seemed like a big thing. So they're having this discussion and Jesus, I imagine he leans over his shoulders like, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why is he saying that? Because the conversation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees was still fresh on his mind. And he's thinking here, while we're thinking here, I don't have bread. And he's thinking eternal. And at this moment, Jesus is like, I'm gonna make a connection for you guys. And they don't get it. And their response is, no, no, <laughs> Jesus, you're so silly. No, no, we forgot bread. Uh, Leaven, the Pharisee, no, no, bread, we forgot bread. So then he goes into verse eight, and he says, Jesus, aware of this, said, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? When I leaned over and said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how is it that you did not know that I'm talking about the conversation that we just had 10 minutes ago and I don't care about the fact that you don't have bread because I've already proven that I can provide bread out of thin air. How is it that you, un, how is it, verse 11, that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then, at that moment, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, actual leaven that you cook with, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, let's pause for a second. If we go back to the beginning of 16, where Jesus is having a conversation with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he's rebuking them, what is he rebuking them for? He's rebuking them because they're missing the signs that God had already given them. You know how to read the signs, but you're not interpreting them. They're right in front of you. You want more, but you've had enough. You're not seeing. Right in front of you, God is proving his faithfulness, but your heart wants this world more than him, and so you're not seeing it. That was the issue. Now you've got a bunch of disciples 
who had just been exposed to Jesus feeding 5,000 and 4,000, and they're complaining about bread. What's happening here when the disciples mention that we forgot bread, and Jesus says, you better watch out for those religious folk. He wasn't necessarily talking about the fermentation process of bread, which is not like the little packets that you buy at Walmart today if you're gonna bake bread at home, the little yeast packet. No, when you're making bread, you take a little bit of chunk out and you leave it out and it ferments and then you add it to the loaf later because the understanding is that whatever new thing you're doing isn't good enough, you gotta add some of the old stuff in with it. Are you with me? So the teaching of the Pharisees is that whatever God is doing right now isn't good enough. It's got to be a mix a little bit with the old stuff, the old stuff being their stuff. God's things aren't good enough on their own. They need a little bit of uh, like man's massaging. And so what's happening here is Jesus is driving down this point that what the disciples are going through is essentially the same thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going through. And if they're not careful, they're on a very dangerous trajectory because what's happening is the Pharisees and the Sadducees are seeing the signs and they're missing them. And now the disciples are talking like they're in the midst of Jesus seeing the signs, but they're not getting it either, which is dangerous because they're the ones who are going to be entrusted with the message. And it's dangerous to have a group of people who are responsible for furthering the message who do not fully understand the message. You get where I'm going with this? But through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the conversations with Jesus and spending time with him and Jesus' grace and his patience, they finally got it and they started making this connection. They were first worried about bread, but Jesus fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. They were starting to mix his teachings because they were in his presence, but they were not really getting it. And so the Jesus, Jesus warns them, beware that you don't start acting like these religious leaders. Beware of surrounding yourself with religion, but missing Jesus. Beware of being so close to a miracle that you don't really realize it's God performing the miracle. You think it's your own handiwork. Don't be so puffed up in your own mind that you got the job that you forget who invented jobs. Don't get to a place in your church where you hear the word regularly but you don't obey it. Beware of hearing part of the gospel and ignoring other parts. Beware of demanding that God continually prove himself when he already has. And at this point it clicked for the disciples and I pray that at this moment in the service is starting to click for us of what he's saying and the weight of what he's saying. Because from this point forward he starts rolling out what the actual message is. At this point, they get it. Oh, I, okay, I, now I'm with you. Now I understand. But they didn't really. I mean, they kind of, they started to, but as soon as he starts rolling out the truth, they're like, oh, Jesus, I don't think that's how it's gonna go down. This other man's gotta suffer, he's gotta die. He's gonna come back from the dead. Peter's like, no, no, Jesus, you can't talk like that. You can't say things like that. They started understanding it, but they didn't fully grasp it, which is good news for us because most of us, we're operating on any given day with like 30% of understanding. 
We act like we're at 100, but reality, we're like 25 at best, which is good because it requires us to run to the Father for clarification. If we're at 100%, then guess who we don't need? God. There's no dependency. So God sets it up this way. So if you're at a place where you're like, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I have no idea what you're talking about. You're in good company. This is okay. Because the Lord is gonna do a work inside of you. So let's continue when he goes into verse 13, because this reality unlocked something really powerful within Peter. It gave him the boldness to kind of declare something and stand up and be like, oh, okay, let's hear it, Peter. Verse 13 says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, essentially he's saying most people say that you're a great guy. And he says to them, but, but who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what other people say, at some point you have to make a decision what you say about me. And teenagers in, in the room today, there's gonna come a point in your life where it doesn't matter what your parents say about Jesus. You're gonna to have to make a decision about what you think about Jesus. There comes a point in everybody's life where they have to make a decision about what they're gonna do with the information they've given about the God of the universe taking on human flesh and receiving your punishment to redeem and reconcile you. Do you want to believe that by faith or do you reject it? It doesn't matter how much I want you to believe it. You have to say it for yourself. So he gets to this place This is verse 15, but he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter jumps up. And Peter's response was a revelation of the Spirit. This is given by the Father. Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he secretly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, that seems weird. Isn't that what you would want? They got it. Go tell everyone. Before we get to that, let's back up just a little bit because I think that there's some clarity that should be brought to this section. There is one interpretation when you read this that essentially, um, and some denominations, they kind of take this understanding that when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, you are the rock and, and I'm gonna build my church on this rock, he's talking specifically to Peter. And he's saying, Peter, from this day forward, you're in charge. You're the head of the disciples. You're the head of the church. You're the first pastor. You're the one in charge. And I'm gonna give you this specific authority. That's one interpretation that Jesus is essentially in this section of scripture giving Peter the keys of the kingdom. I don't personally subscribe to that understanding. 
I think what Jesus is doing here is he's affirming Peter's response as the response that every Christian should profess when the question is asked, what do you say I am? Because what he responds here when he says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, on this rock, on Peter or on the profession that Jesus is the Son of God. That's where I would lean. That in Peter saying, you are the Son of God, that is the foundation that this church, every church in Jesus' name will be built on, and if that is the foundation of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now churches that don't have that foundation, we can't really call churches, and there's no promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against them. You following? There is a very important foundational truth to what Jesus is saying to Peter about the way churches are supposed to be built on the foundation that it is all about Jesus. And when this happens, when God is the foundation of the church, when it's all about Jesus, then the kingdom of darkness is powerless against Jesus and therefore powerless against the working of Jesus through his church. And God's mission for the church is to, in a way, bind the kingdom of darkness on earth and loose the kingdom of light on earth. That is what we would call evangelism spreading the gospel message and infiltrating the darkness with light. That is the great commission. That is the mission of every gospel church that is built on the foundation of Jesus. That is what we're supposed to be doing. Furthering the gospel message message by binding the kingdom of darkness and loosing light. That's the authority we have as Jesus works through us. That's what happens every time you spread the gospel and preach the gospel to somebody. In a way, the Lord is working through you to push back darkness and release truth and light into their life in a way that was previously not there. You following? That's the work of God through us, through a healthy church. Now, let's go back to verse 20. When he strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, why would he do this? Why is Jesus telling them not to tell anybody? Because they did not fully grasp the message. They surpassed the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their understanding. Okay, I'm starting to see when you're talking about bread, the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't about feeding hungry mouths. It was about communicating to the entire earth that you are the bread of life and you are enough. There is more than enough to go around. And when we're all done, guess what? There's more to take home. There is more than enough in you because you are the bread and your body is broken for us. Got it. They're surpassing the Pharisees and Sadducees in the understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. The problem is that's not the end of the gospel message. The affirmation that Jesus, you are the Son of God, is only the beginning. It is not the full message. And so to tell the disciples, hey, you got this, now go tell everyone, they wouldn't have the full understanding, the full message. They would only be preaching half the message. And when it gets time to, okay, well, what do I do with that? Oh, he didn't tell us. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know. Jesus is God, right? Yeah, he's the Son of God. Cool. What do we do from that? I don't know. He didn't tell us that part. Well, he starts rolling this out in the next few verses. And it's important to know the whole message because the whole message is more than just knowing Jesus is God. 
The other components to it that are about to be rolled out here include things like suffering and overcoming. And what we're about to see is how Jesus, uh, how the disciples respond to that message. So they were able to affirm Jesus is the Son of God, but the moment he starts talking about the role of suffering in his life and in the life of his followers, it's like, oh, no, 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 there's no suffering. We're not going to suffer. It sounds like a lot of churches these days. I've got no problem singing about Jesus being king, but I am of the firm belief that Jesus doesn't send us any tough problems. I came to him so he got rid of my tough problems. I came to him so I'd have a better life right now. That's what I'm about. That's not the gospel message. That's not what he promises. That's not anything like what he promises. So what does he talk about? Verse 21. So after this, after they've affirmed Jesus is God, verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. So from that, from that point in time, he began to roll out the truth. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> you see why Jesus said, don't tell anybody? Because you don't understand. Jesus rebukes him and says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. I'm not going to let this happen to you, Jesus. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Oof. <laughs> you are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus turned to his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what is that referring to? Most likely, it's referring to the very next chapter in the transfiguration. Some of them are going to see the Son of Man in the fullness of his kingdom. It could also mean the ascension. It could have mean the day of Pentecost. But I don't think it's meaning his second coming yet, that there are some people from the first century who are still alive today, hiding out somewhere in a cave. But when he does say the Son of Man is coming with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he's going to repay each person according to what he does, that does seem to allude to the end of the age, when all things are done and when all accounts are settled. So what's he saying here after the declaration that Jesus is going to suffer and die and resurrect? The disciples clearly were okay with Jesus being the Son of God 
But the moment that the idea of suffering and death rolled out, they were not happy with it. Jesus tried to correct Jesus because he didn't see the relationship between what Jesus was going to do and the role that suffering and death and resurrection are going to play. But these are important components to the work of God. They're fundamental to the foundation of the church and God's mission. You cannot divorce the role of suffering from the work of Jesus. Now, when it comes to getting saved, Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 10, 9 is pretty clear. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, there is some requirement for us to not just, when, it talk, when we're talking about the gospel message, to not just say, I believe that Jesus is who he says he was. There is a responsibility on us, once that declaration is true and we believe it, to repent. There is a component of turning from one life and turning to a new life in order to get saved. And that is all that is required for salvation. It is by faith alone. You put your faith in what Jesus did and you're saved, but that's not all the message. That gets you to the point of you are now saved and part of God's kingdom, but the message doesn't stop there. That's not all there is. There is more to it. Jesus outlines this in verse 21, or excuse me, verse 24. When he rolls out the rest of this message, he says, okay, if anybody wants to come after me, here's what they have to do. They have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So the idea of suffering and putting things to death is not just a work that Jesus did one time. It is now the thing that we do on a regular basis after we get saved. It is essentially the entire Christian life. That's an important part of the message. The idea that every morning when you wake up, there is a responsibility on you if you believed that he rose from the dead and he is doing a work in you that you today are supposed to deny yourself. Tell your flesh no. Not just walk in repentance that moment you got saved, but walk in repentance regularly when your flesh says, I wanna do this. No, I don't, but he doesn't want me to, so I'm gonna trust him over me. So I gave my affections to that, but that's not the way I wanna live, so I turned from that, Lord, I repent of that. I'm yours, I'm not the old person. I'm denying my flesh. Oh, I want this. I want to buy this new thing. I want to get into debt to buy this new thing. You don't want that. He doesn't want that for you. So you tell yourself no. You deny your selfishness because you don't need it. Oh, but you don't know what it is. If you want to come after Jesus, you've got to deny yourself but then you've also got to take up your cross. What is taking up your cross? Taking up your cross is sharing in the suffering and the shame of what Jesus did on the cross. Where is this? Man, this is everywhere. This is 2 Corinthians 1.5. This is 2 Timothy 1.8. This is 2 Timothy 2.8. This is Romans 8.17. Paul makes it very clear in all of his letters that what we are doing is sharing in the suffering of Jesus. When he took up that cross, we in kind respond by also taking up our cross. 
the suffering that he received, we're not promised that we won't see it. We're promised, in fact, that we will, in fact, see it. The trials, the tribulations, the persecutions, the suffering, the difficult component of saying, I'm not going to get my treasures now. I'm going to postpone enjoyment and pleasure, and I'm going to find my enjoyment and pleasure in him, not in this world, and I'm going to reap benefits later rather than now. That is not an easy thing to do, and it is in the classification of suffering. To say, I'm not having it now, because I want him now. That's a component of suffering. A component of suffering is like many of our brothers and sisters in foreign countries who don't get to gather like we are today without the inherent fear that somebody's gonna bust in one of these doors and arrest every one of us and put us to death because being a Christian is illegal. Suffering following him, knowing that if you surrender to him, your family's gonna turn their back on you, suffering. Why don't we see more of that suffering in our lives? Because in America, following Jesus doesn't cost very much. It's cheap. You can go anywhere you want. There are plenty of churches to attend. If you didn't like anything that happened here today, there's like 600 different choices you could try tomorrow or ne next Sunday. You don't have to come back here. You don't have to submit. You don't have to obey. You don't have to listen to any of this stuff. In America, the gospel of preach is just the beginning of the message. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely. Cool, then we're brothers. That's not the whole story. There's more to it than that. There's a denying, there's a suffering, there's a following him, there's a, there's a way our life is supposed to be reflecting the way that he walked and the way that he treated people and the way that he lived and the fruit that he demonstrated. He walked with peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. Does, is, uh, do those sound like how people describe you? Or are we short-tempered? Are we angry? We're walking a fruitless life, but because we all say, well, Jesus is the Son of God, we think that we have cleared the board and things are fine. That's not the whole message. The whole message is much more robust than that. So we've got a couple things here. We've got first, we've, uh, um, the idea that uh, we gotta profess that Jesus is Lord. There's this idea that there requires some amount of repentance to, to come to him and confess that truth. And then there's a certain responsibility that we have of, of, of uh, okay, I'm gonna deny myself. I'm, uh, I'm gonna take up my cross and share in the suffering. I'm going to follow him and I'm gonna model the way that he lived. But is that the full story? No, because in 27, it says that the Son of Man is coming with his angels in the glory of the Father and he's going to repay. So the other component of this message is that we are going to be rewarded for this life of suffering when all things are done. That's an important part of the message. I find so many Christians who are trying to live their lives with gritted teeth, just holding on, just pretending like this is, if I could just get through tomorrow. Things are really bad right now, but I just know he wouldn't want me to give up, and so I'm just gonna hold on. Why are you holding on? Because he said I had to. <laughs> well, there's way more to it than that. See, what he did in coming back from the dead was he became the first fruits of the resurrection for all of us. The message is not, 
uh, Jesus, you're the son of God and now I'm just gonna suffer and I'm gonna get through it and it's gonna be difficult but it's because I love you and some way I kind of think deep down that I'm gonna repay you for all, of you, all the work that you did because of how tough my life is. That's not how it works. There's an important part of the message that comes after that he tells us is a part of the full message, which means that he's gonna resurrect us, he's going to return, and he's gonna deal with sin over the entire earth, and he's gonna rule and reign in human physical form and resurrected form with us. We're gonna resurrect too. We're not gonna be angel babies floating around in heaven for eternity, just strumming on harps, looking at each other, hey, isn't this great? No, you're gonna be resurrected in your physical bodies. He was the first fruit of that, he's gonna do it again. You're coming, you, you are, that's the benefit, that's the payoff, that's the beauty of what Jesus is doing in this entire work. And we stop short when it's like, well, it's just a suffering, it's gotta be. No, there's such a glorious message after that. It's the return of the king. It's the setting of, of, of sin. It's, it's the punishment of all darkness. It's putting Satan in his place. It's living eternally with no more, with no more elections where you're gonna sit back and go like, I don't really like this guy, I'm not really happy with how this turns out, but it's, it's the better of two evils. Is there really a thing of the better of two evils? No, evil is evil, there's no better. And so every time we're presented in this broken world with some choice, none of the choices are great. All of the choices are, well, I guess, I guess. But imagine a day when our king comes back and we don't have to vote somebody lousy into office and pretend that we're all happy about it because the king is on the throne. He's Jesus. He's God in human flesh. And he's gonna have time for you and you're gonna sit and you're gonna have, you're gonna have coffee with him and you're gonna enjoy with him for all eternity, his great creation, and it's gonna be like Garden of Eden over the entire earth with no worry that somebody's gonna go eat an apple that they were told not to. It's gonna be glorious, and I can't wait for it. And it helps me endure how dark the times are now because I know what's coming. And that's the full message. And that's the point of what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples. So let's close with this. Let's close with, with rehashing the entire whole message. The idea that the Son of Man, Jesus, is God. That's important. That's part of the message, but not the whole message. We have to also repent of our sins and turn to that truth that Jesus is King. But once we repent and we get saved, we start living this life of denial and sharing in the suffering of our King and letting the fruitfulness of who he is start welling up on the inside of us so we become a people who are like him, with compassion for those who were not part of the family yet, filled with love but also speak truth. But that's not the whole message, there's another component of the message, that one day he will return and repay to all of us according to every single thing we did here on this earth, good and bad that we will be held accountable for every idle word and moment of time that we wasted not giving him glory and building his kingdom. And that that should in fact rearrange our value system of what we should be spending a lot of our time doing. 
I'm not against hobbies. I'm not against having fun. If you look at God's creation, there is a component of the animal kingdom that it seems like there's a part of God's character that put into animals that, man, they just like to play. They like to have fun. And so there's a component in the life of human beings that it's not all down to business, gotta get serious all the time. You can relax and have some fun, have a hobby, but that hobby should not be elevated above Jesus. There should be an ultimate allegiance where no joy in this world takes precedence or rules over the reality that Jesus is the one who informs how we live. Because there's coming a day where he will return and repay to us according to what we have done on this earth. And that is the whole message. And if we don't live like that's the whole message, we can start denying parts of it. We can start acting like this part is my favorite part and this part I don't really like so much so I'm not gonna obey. And we start creating different churches surrounding all these ideas that uh, I, I, may not, I may like Jesus um, as king but I don't like suffering or I really all just wanna be about suffering and I don't wanna really pay attention to the idea that he's going to return. And so this is the point of where we're going today. It's the same point that Jesus was making to the disciples. Beware of surrounding yourself with God, but not seeing him anywhere. Because you don't understand the full message. Because you only like parts of him, but not all of him. So what do we do in return? We ask God to give us a tender heart to see him working in all areas and the courage to join him. We live in the fullness of this entire gospel message and stop clinging to the parts that we're good at or we like and pointing fingers at other people who don't line up with what we believe. We're all on the same page. We're Christians, which means we believe the entire gospel message. It starts with the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God and it ends with the glorious return of him reigning as king over our lives in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us and God bless.